This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. What you get when you, when you start researching the Caucasus and Central Asia is, well, at the time we got there, is a blank slate. Uh, there was no uh, reporting, there was no uh, book that brought together the whole region. There was nothing that we had that could, that could uh, tell us, give us a roadmap. How do we understand this region as a, as a whole? And I began to, to look underneath it. Um, and, uh, and what I found was, as you might find, is how big personalities shaped the events. And it was, it was a fascinating thing going back to from the, uh, the middle of the 19th century forward and backward, and you found that Winston Churchill, Woodrow Wilson, Teddy Roosevelt, of course Lenin and Stalin, all the way up to uh, Nixon, Brezhnev, Reagan, uh, Queen Elizabeth plays a, uh, a small role in the events on the, on the region, Thatcher, but all of them acting in contexts that I had never read about anywhere and intersecting with personalities that I hadn't heard about before. And the most interesting were not these historical figures, at least to me. John Doyce. John Doyce is a, is a Dutch oil trader who ended up on the Caspian and made people very nervous. It was said, for example, that Doyce had this very strange and unexplained scar running down the whole back of his neck. And the KGB was pursuing him all across Europe. Something about a hundred million dollar debt. And how he arrived on the, on, the, on the Caspian, not as the Dutchman he was, but as an official representative of the Sultanate of Oman. It surprised no one that he that he launched himself from that position into uh, inside, uh, inside positions in the government of Russia, Kazakhstan, and Azerbaijan. This, this especially made sh uh, the sh Chevron company nervous because it ended up in a huge row with him in two deals that I'm going to talk about. Jim Giffen. Jim Giffen was the biggest privateer of them all. What, what distinguished Giffen and Doyce from everybody else is that they launched themselves as individuals coming under their own steam into the former Soviet Union, not connected to any country, not connected to any company, although they often claim to be both, and insinuated themselves into the very biggest deals into relationships with the most powerful people in all of these republics. Giffen 
had and Joyce had an ability to walk into any room, no matter how important the people were inside that room, and make them think, these important people think that they were important people, and they wanted to deal with them exclusively. They had an, uh, an ability to project an ingeniousness in, in geopolitics, in deal-making. One American who sat on the same side of the table as Giffen told me, Jim had the ability to know exactly how much blood was in the turnip and how to get that blood out. Oilman said Giffen was an, was an arrogant man. This was a very big statement, if anyone here knows any oilmen. In 2004, Jim Giffen was, was driving on one of his routine trips to JFK. When he arrived at the airport, he was handcuffed and arrested by the FBI, charged with a violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. He was charged with passing along about $80 million in bribes to the president of Kazakhstan. Uh, uh, this is the largest foreign bribery case in U.S. history, and the, and the trial should, should start next year. I call the era of America on the Caspian Sea uh, one of the most significant American foreign policy successes of the last 10 or 15 years. It all revolved around pipelines, specifically this pipeline, the Baku-Jehan pipeline, which runs from here on the Caspian Sea and links it with the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, as it stands, the prevailing wisdom about Russia is that Vladimir Putin and Russia itself today are, 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 uh, are a function of the survival of a single entity from the rubble of the Soviet Union. The so-called Soloviki, the power structures, specifically the successor agency to the KGB, the FSB. What I argue is that two structures uh, survived, the other being the energy structure, specifically Gazprom and Transneft, the oil pipeline company, and that these structures are more important to understanding Russia than the Soloviki. And that, if, if you follow the pipelines, if you can understand the pipelines and this energy structure, then you can understand who Putin is, where Russia is going, and, as I'll tell you later, how geopolitics is being projected from there into Europe. So, I'm going to tell you tonight just a little bit about old Baku, historical Baku, 19th, late 19th century, early 20th century, about when the first oil men arrived on the Caspian Sea after the fall of the Berlin Wall, a little bit about pipelines, and then how the great game is being played today. Oh. Okay. One of the things that surprised me in starting to research the book was to find out that uh, not Texas, not Pennsylvania, but Baku was the oil capital of the world in, in the 19th century and the early 
20th century. Uh, 1901, it provided 51% of the, of the world's entire supply of oil. When you look at the diaries of the Westerners who visited Baku in the 18th, 19th, and early, early 20th century, you get a uniform, uniformly astonished description of one nightly occurrence, and that is this eerie blue light that crossed the whole horizon. And this was natural gas. The natural gas and the oil were so close to the surface that literally you could dig into the soil and, and reach the oil with your hand. And that, that, that light was both spontaneously lit natural gas and deliberately lit because uh, people would, would dig a hole at night in that soil, light a fire, put their pot on there, and cook their dinner, have cheeseburgers. Um, that, that energy being so close to the surface produced, uh, produced all kinds of very interesting phenomena, horrific phenomena. For example, a diary from 1754 described how a stable with eight horses in it burst into flames, burning these horses alive because the, the ground underneath them uh, ignited. And how, that, and, 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 and how that fire burned cold. Ludwig Nobel drove his steamship straight through the burning sea without being singed. Ludwig Nobel, the brother of Alfred Nobel, the namesake of the Nobel Prize, the oil king of Baku, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the late 19th and the early 20th centuries, Nobel by himself produced 9% of the whole world supply of oil. But that's not what, it, what he's most famous for. What he's most famous for is his genius as an inventor, just like his brother. Ludwig Nobel invented, for instance, the oil tanker. The oil tanker that we have today that revolutionized the world, that created the economy that we, that, that we have today was invented by Ludwig Nobel in the 19th century, 136 feet long, and it could carry 1,750 barrels of oil. Another one of these interesting factoids from, these period, from this period, which I think you'll appreciate, is that the West, even then, simply could not accept that the Russian Empire was capable of any technological advance worth adopting. And so it took the West eight years to adopt that oil tanker. It took the West 25 years to adopt a, an amazing refining advance that Nobel made. Let's see where we are. Um, barons like Nobel turned Baku into a European-style city plopped right in the middle of, right in between the backward Russian and Persian empires. This is what it, what it looked like on the, on the seashore. But perhaps it, it was not surprising that the, that the West regarded Russia as a backward place. When the, when the Bolshevik revolution happened, and it, 
after the Civil War, and Baku was in flames and the oil fields destroyed. Lenin invited Westerners back in, please revive our oil fields. The first person who arrived was Henry Mason Day from New York. He was, he was the Jim Giffen of, of, of his day, a raconteur without any oil experience who managed to insinuate himself in the situation and became the, uh, the main representative to the West for Armenia, Georgia, and Baku. He arrived on the scene with state-of-the-art rotary drills. But what he found was that Baku was completely, uh, was completely dominated by a method called a percussion drill. This is a very, uh, a, a, a very amusing way of um, drilling for oil. Basically, you stand up on a platform with a, a heavy object attached to a pole and keep dropping it on the soil until you create a hole, a well. Uh, by 1928, Day and some other, uh, and some other uh, Americans and Germans revived all the fields, and, uh, and uh, Stalin kicked them all out. Uh, in World War II, Stalin was afraid that Hitler was going to, uh, was going to capture the Baku oil fields. Um, historians today believe that if he had captured those, those fields, there very well could have been a different victor in World War II. But Stalin had cemented those, those uh, wells shut, and it ruined Baku, and it went into a steep decline. Until, uh, I'll keep this up, until uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Let me see what I've got next. Okay, this is good. Okay. When the Berlin Wall came down, this caused, as people will rem remember here, an amazing surge of spirit, especially in the, in, the, in the West. The belief was we had won the Cold War, that, that free markets were going to, uh, to win over the whole world, that walls were coming down. Gorbachev declared the Soviet Union open for business and the Caspian Sea especially captured this spirit. Uh, oilmen locked out of the Soviet Union for all of these decades rushed onto the Caspian Sea and into Baku. When they would fly in, if they were looking out of the right window of the plane, this is one of the sights they would see, oily rocks. This is the first uh, oil city offshore anywhere in the world. It was built in 1948. But by this time, it was decrepit, it was falling into the ocean, and badly in need of re repair. The other thing they would see when they looked out of this, out of this window, out of the windows of their plane, was a wondrous place. What a wonderful city. Look at all those trees. It's so green, it's like a, it's like a forest. Until the plane got closer and they saw that, these, that, that, that what they thought was green was not green, and what they thought were trees were not trees. These were the old derricks, the old derricks from these now abandoned fields all over 
Baku, all over the city and outside the city, abandoned and filled all around the bottom with this, with this crud, this dried up oil. One of the first, uh, one of the first Americans who arrived on the scene was a diplomat named Robert Finn. And, and he described how he and the others who came on the scene couldn't find the kind of accommodations that they were used to elsewhere. The way he described it was, <clears throat> the rats had the kitchen, I had the bedroom. This, this was an interesting uh, comment as an aside because he told me this two or three years ago after the import of the region had already become obvious. And one of his colleagues told me that, that Finn had stolen that story. He said he was the one with the rats. Uh, the oil men's advance into the region was not, was not uncontested um, by the Russians. When the, when the oil men would go into their hotel rooms, <clears throat> they would rut rut routinely look at a portrait, for example, on the wall and find that there was a wire going down that portrait and look behind it and there would be a microphone. Go into their, into the offices where they were working <clears throat> and find when they swept the offices with a uh, microphone sweeper filled with bugs. Remove the bugs, come back in the morning, sweep again, filled with bugs. The overnight, the KGB actually would, uh, would dig holes in the walls of these offices, reinstall microphones, and then cover them up with, these, with this plaster. Uh, British ambassador at that time and the head of the BP delegation described to me how they, they, they had this very sensitive discussion to have. They, uh, they weren't going to have it inside the office. So they went out on that seashore, the one that was in that, that other picture in Baku. And they're walking along, they're walking along that seashore, and they notice as they went a little, a little ways that a car parked behind them and a dog jumped out. And as they were walking, that dog started following them. And every time they started talking, the tail would go up. And they said, what, what are those Russians up to now? And they went back to their office. And when I interviewed them, I said, well, what did you guys think? Did, did you guys really think that that dog was bugged? And they said, who knew? So these days created a certain atmosphere, uh, an at atmosphere of suspicion, an atmosphere that these oil men weren't accustomed to anywhere else they had been. Marat Manafov. Marat Manafov was the Azeri oil negotiator one, at one time. He invited the, uh, the oil men to have an introductory meeting. And they, they had this in a, in a small room. And the first thing he said was, OK, let's introduce each other. Let's exchange business cards. So these oil men and the, and the lawyers began to exchange business cards around. And it came to, it came to Monofov's turn. He reached into his jacket and he slapped down on the table 
a nine millimeter pistol. This is his calling card. This, if, if you take away anything from this, this meeting tonight, it is the lesson, what do you do when your host presents you a sheep's eye or a sheep's ear? John Brown, the chairman of, of, uh, of BP, was in Atarau in Kazakhstan trying to close an oil deal there, their oil deal there. And he was at this, uh, at this dinner and of course, as the, as the guest of honor, presented the sheep's eye. I'm not going to tell you yet what you do with that eye. Al Gore, when he went to Kyrgyzstan, presented with the sheep's ear. The, the, uh, the secret here is swallow, don't chew. Okay. Um, these deals were eventually all done on both sides of the Caspian. Do I have a, yeah, I got a map. Uh, offshore Baku, deals were signed in the mid-1990s and right here in Kazakhstan. Big success, but it wasn't a success because then that presented the biggest challenge of, of all. How do we get this oil out? Because as you look at the, at, the, at the map, the Caucasus and Central Asia are entirely landlocked. And so began a, a uh, travail, really. How are we going to get the oil out? And that, that involves pipelines. And that pipeline travail was, was one of geopolitical significance. When, when Bill Clinton came to power, he brought along with him an old buddy from his Oxford days named Strobe Talbot. Strobe Talbot was a, is a Russia expert. His expertise comes from his studying of cultural Russia, literature, music, art. He translated, as people here probably know, the Khrushchev memoirs. Clinton considered him the smartest man on Russia he had ever met. He made Talbot his point man on all Russia and really former Soviet affairs. No policy could be made on Russia without going through Talbot. And Talbot had a romantic view of Russia. From this literature, like a, a lot of us, it was also based on that singular image of Yeltsin standing on that tank in August 1991 and stopping the Soviet Union from reverting to its, its authoritarian Soviet past. Talbot believed that Russia now was heading inexorably to a reformist, pro-Western, and non-threatening future. And, and his belief was that because of this, no other policy, no other events anywhere on the, on the, in the former Soviet Union should interfere with that. He had facts on his side. It was true that what was the biggest issue going on at that time? Arms control. Huge, huge volumes, huge numbers of nuclear weapons, of missiles, uh, enriched uranium were all over the territory. 
This was the number one American concern. And from Russia's side, we assumed the Soviet debt. We are the inheritor. We are, we, we, we are the rightful in, in, in inheritor of the Soviet Union. That means that we also are the rightful heirs of the plus side of the ledger. What's the plus side of the ledger? The oil fields. Oil fields now being crawled over by foreigners like so many ants. This was not uh, uh, something that the, um, that, uh, the Kremlin favored. This point of view, Talbot's point of view, didn't, didn't prevail. Talbot was forced to challenge Russia on the Caspian Sea. He was forced to change his, his uh, policy, and the whole United States policy changed. It was, it was a surprising turn of events because it didn't happen from an initiative at the very top, but far, far below. A critical mass of junior officers in the State Department, in the, on the National Security Council, Energy Department, uh, Pentagon, formed a contrary opinion. They, they believed that Russia was a threatening and a dangerous power, and that opinion was based on events in Central Asia and the Caucasus. Russia was responsible for the near dismemberment of Georgia. 1993. I lived there at the time. Um, one day, one of my colleagues from the Financial Times came back to the office. And he said that he had just ran into a whole group of Russian tanks just, just west of Tbilisi. And he managed to have a conversation with the drivers of one of those tanks. And, and uh, where are you guys coming from? The uh, driver said that he had come from Sahumi, capital of Abkhazia, which had just broken away in a civil war from Georgia. Russia wanted, wanted to humble Georgia, but it did not want Georgia to disintegrate. So after Abkhazia broke away, the head of the Russian military unit in, uh, uh, in Sahumi asked for volunteers. Who will save Georgia? These Russian tanks, these, these tanks were part of that contingent. The same year I went to Baku and I interviewed there a former deputy defense minister. She was complaining bitterly. The Russians are helping the Armenians to take away our land of Nagorno-Karabakh. Right here. How do you know that? How do you know the Russians are, are helping the Armenians? Because they were helping us last year, she said. The, the uh, Russians did not, did not only fan the flames of civil war at this time. Russia also strangled economies. It, 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 uh, it cut off Turkmenistan's natural gas flow to the west. It cut off Kazakhstan's natural gas flow and, and uh, 
intermittently its oil flow. It did so through its iron umbilical cord. Iron, iron umbilical cord. This is a term that was formulated by one of these junior officers underneath Strobe Talbot, Sheila Heslin. Sheila Heslin was on the National Security Council in charge of this region, and she was referring to, with, the, with this term, the, the, the Soviet-era natural gas and oil pipeline system that ran between Central Asia and the Caucasus. Every barrel of oil that anyone would want to export out of either one of these regions, any metric uh, 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 any cubic, I'm sorry, any cubic meter of natural gas that anyone would, would want to export had to travel through Russia. And Russia had a spigot, effectively a spigot, and would shut that off, as I've explained, when it, when it saw fit. Sheila Heslin argued that, that this was strangling the, these e economies and the United States needed to get behind these states. And the turning point in this whole uh, affair of US policy happened at a meeting in Washington, 1996, when Strobe Talbot, other, other uh, deputy secretaries, and Sheila Heslin met. And Heslin took a blank piece of paper, and she drew Central Asia and the Caucasus on it. And what you could see when you looked at that map was that it is completely surrounded by countries of primary American strategic interest. Iran to the south, China to the east, and Russia to the north. Heslin argued that it was incumbent upon the United States to to join a battle for influence that was bound to, to occur within the next few, few years and win that battle. She argued that it was, it was in the US interest, in fact, to help make this, this area a pro-Western swath of territory right between Russia and Iran. Strobe Talbot couldn't, couldn't argue with that logic. None of the people present could. And so was born American foreign policy supporting, getting behind this, this region economically, and by extension, politically, and the Baku Jehan pipeline. There it is right there, a thousand miles long, uh, currently shipping a million barrels a day. This pipeline is an economic lifeline for the Caucasus and, uh, and, and has provided a measure of, of political independence for this, for this region. But it didn't provide any, anything for the East Caspian, for Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan. And now Russia uh, um, showed how it was still a consummate player of pipeline politics. It, 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 it did so through this pipeline. This field right here, the Tengiz oil field, is the sixth largest oil field in the world. Chevron and Exxon own 75% of that, of, that, of that field. There, there was a meeting, 
a few, a few years ago in Almaty, where all the players who were involved in building that pipeline, this pipeline, uh, got together and discussed it. It involved the, the oil minister of Russia, the oil minister of Kazakhstan, the oil minister of Oman, Jim Giffen, and John Doyce, these two privateers, the only time in the whole uh, Caspian era when they sat across from each other at the same negotiating table. And the Russian oil minister, Yuri Shafranik, was angry. And he was becoming angrier as the meeting progressed because the Kazakh minister wouldn't accede to his demands. And, and at one point, he turned to the Kazakh minister, Nurlan Bagambayev, said, Nurlan, do you mind if I borrow your mobile phone? So he borrowed this phone and he disappeared into a corner and he had this muffled conversation. And then he returned to the, to the table. The meeting broke up for the day a little bit after that. And the Kazakhs went back to their office and there they discovered what that phone call was all about. There on the fax machine was a piece of paper, an announcement from Russia. Freak storm on the Black Sea. All oil shipments postponed for further notice. What does that mean? Don't mess with Russia. This pipeline was built and well, this, this map is a little bit old. It's shipping 650,000 barrels a day. A little bit uh, over, over half that from the Tangus oil field. But the Chevron and Exxon, its econo their economic plan to make that, to make that field uh, work is to ship a million barrels a day. And they want to double the size of that pipeline to 1.4 million barrels. Russia is blocking this expansion. A, a oil man I know in Almaty told me a rule of thumb of how to understand these events, the, the repeated events on the, on, the, on the Caspian. And what he said was, generally, when a man has a knife to your throat, he wants something. What does Russia want? Russia wants, wants Chevron and Exxon to pay for a different, another pipeline, a pipeline that has no connection with, with the Tangus oil field. It would travel from here in Bulgaria to here in Greece. This pipeline has logic to it because the singular fact about shipping oil from Russia is that almost all of it has to go through the Bosphorus Strait. This is an ecologically very sensitive zone. Right through Istanbul, if, if, if an oil tanker crashes in that, in that region, it could cause an ecological disaster for the city of 11 million people. And that pipeline, if it were built, would mean a million barrels a day not going through the Bosphorus Strait. But it also, it, it makes commercial sense for Russia because it would mean that Baku-Jehan, the Baku-Jehan pipeline, 
would not be the only game in town in terms of being able to get Caspian Sea oil right onto the Mediterranean. And it makes geopolitical sense for them because, again, there would be parity with the Baku Jehan pipeline, and therefore, the Baku Jehan pipeline's importance would be diminished. That pipeline, that proposed pipeline, is a is a um, an expression of Russia's. Uh, uh, it's, I should say, it's explainable by. It's explainable by a larger plan of, of Russia, really a, a market-oriented plan. It's, it's uh, Russia pursuing its best interest. And as it sees its best interest is, uh, is increasing uh, its, its projection of its petropower from this region into Europe, basically grabbing more of the market. And the way that it, it's planning to do this oh, is the construction of another natural gas pipeline from Turkmenistan, taking, uh, capturing all of Turkmenistan. Turkmenistan has, is the fourth largest possessor of natural gas in the world. So capturing Turkmenistan's natural gas, Kazakhstan's natural gas, shipping it up into Russia, gathering up Russia's natural gas and into Europe, into northern Europe through Nord Stream, the Nord Stream pipeline, into, south, into in, to southern Europe through the South Stream pipeline. These pipelines together would isolate, if built, would isolate the East Caspian further without any relief in sight. East Caspian meaning Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan, and closer to, to home, make Europe more reliant on Russian natural gas. On, on Europe, there's a, a debate going on within Europe about, on this very topic, and the debate goes like this. Is, is it important that Russia currently supplies 30% of, of Europe's natural gas and uh, oil. Is that, is that an important fact? Is it important that Russia is, is, is currently buying up oil and natural gas installations in Eastern Europe, in Central Europe, and, and in Western Europe? I personally don't, don't think this is much of a debate in what country in the world does the former head of state become an employee of the oil company of another country? Gerhard Schroeder, the former chancellor of Germany, is an employee of Gazprom. He's in charge of the Nord Stream pipeline. Italy. Italy has recently sold its uh, part of its retail network to Gazprom in order to obtain access to uh, natural gas fields in Russia. Italy and Germany, in my opinion, are behaving imprudently in this, in, this, in this case because Russia is not Norway. Russia has its, its, uh, its uh, strategy. It has a record of using petropower as a blunt 
instrument for political gain uh, in Central Asia, in the, in the Caucasus, Belarus, Ukraine. And it's projecting this into, it's attempting to project this into Europe. We, we, we depend on Europe for uh, influence on political questions all around the world. Uh, and that influence could be threatened by growing, by, by, by growing petropower from Russia, which has taken opposite positions on many of the questions that we care about. What is the answer? What is an answer to this? Another pipeline. This, this pipeline is a brand new pipeline. Well, I shouldn't say brand new. It's a long proposed pipeline crossing the Trans-Caspian pipeline from Turkmenistan to Baku. It would be 1,000 miles, $5 billion. It would, it would travel across up into Georgia, onto Turkey, and then send its natural gas on into Europe. If it were twinned with an oil pipeline, suddenly Central Asia and the Caucasus would be a unit. They would have an independent line, economic line, for their natural gas, for their oil, into, into Europe. And Europe would have a, a, a more diversified supply of natural gas and oil. And that knife would be pulled a few inches away from, from that throat. Thank you very much.